Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us as we dive into the history, hauntings, and high strangers of the world to try to better understand the paranormal. I will be your guide. I am paranormal researcher and investigator Eric Freeman Sims. Welcome to the Unseen Paranormal Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Unseen Paranormal. Today we're chatting with author, screenwriter, and Bram Stoker award-winning writer, Lisa Morton. Lisa has authored many nonfiction books, including Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, Ghost, A Haunted History, and our topic today, Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. Calling the Spirits investigates the eerie history of our conversations with the dead, from necromancy in Homer's Odyssey to the emergence of spiritualism, when Victorians were entranced by mediums and the seance was born. You can find more information about Lisa Morton on her website, lisamorton.com, and her books are available on Amazon, Kindle, and wherever fine books are sold. All Lisa's links will be in the show notes, per usual. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Eric. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for, for agreeing to come on. I, I found your book, Calling All Spirits, The History of Seances, and I was like, yes, I have to talk to her. Because I find seances fascinating and how they kind of fit. Because I've been a paranormal investigator for many, many years, and how that has kind of led into Ouija boards and things like that as well. But how did you get into writing about, because you started off as a screenwriter, so how did you get into writing horror and, uh, and nonfiction, paranormal, and, and about all things spooky? Well, obviously, I always have had an interest in it. I mean, I always describe myself as that weird little girl who wanted to dress up at Halloween as a monster, not a princess. And I actually started wanting to be a writer when I was 15, and I saw The Exorcist, and that movie absolutely changed my world. Up until then, I wanted to go into the sciences, specifically um, anthropology, and after that, I knew I had to be a writer. I wanted to have that effect on people. And so I did screenwriting for a while. It wasn't until I was very modestly successful at it that I realized it was not for me. Um, I did not like the way these finished products came out. I mean, uh, most of my movies were the kind of thing that you see on the sci-fi channel at like four in the morning. And there was no pride of ownership there for me. So I kind of segued into first fiction and then nonfiction. My first nonfiction book was actually a film book. but uh, the publisher I did that book with said, hey, do you want to do another book with us? And 
At the time, I looked at their catalog and saw they had just put out something called a Christmas encyclopedia. And I thought, well, hey, nobody's ever done a Halloween encyclopedia. And that was about 20 years ago. And that has just kept snowballing into a variety of other nonfiction subjects. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome how, <laughs> like you said, you thought you wanted to be a screenwriter and then it's snowballed into completely something else. I love how life can kind of steer you in a completely different direction. Yeah, it absolutely did in my case. What got you into writing about seances and the history of seances? I wish I could say it was my idea. It was actually my editor's idea. Um, I've done three books with a company called Reaction Books. And they approached me on all three of them. So um, the first one was Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And they had found me because I had done the Halloween Encyclopedia. And um, I love their books. I love the way their books look. They usually, they're beautifully illustrated and put together and so forth. So after we did the Halloween book, my editor there said, hey, we're going to do a line of like creature books. Would you like to do one of those? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I picked Ghosts because I've always loved ghost stories and the paranormal and so forth. And then um, a few years ago, um, the editor came back and said, hey, what do you think about doing a book on the history of seances? And I thought that would be really fun because I had already done a lot of the research when I did the ghost history book. But I will say that the seance book took me down some really strange and interesting paths that I did not anticipate. (laughs) Yeah, but... So with the with the history of seances, kind of the fascination with, with death and what happens after has kind of gone across humanity ever since we've been around. And so back in the early days, they, you had magic and all these things because we didn't have science to necessarily explain the world around us. And so you had magic and you had necromancy. And that was kind of the earliest beginnings of people trying to contact the dead and raise the dead and things like that. Yeah, we can look back at that all the way to, um, for example, in the Odyssey, Homer's classic about Odysseus trying to return home after the Trojan War. There's a scene where he and his crew get trapped on um, the island with the sorceress Circe, and they're trying to figure out how to get home. And she, they decide that if they could bring up the spirit of this dead prophet named Tiresias, that they could figure out how to get home. And So she tells them how to do it, and it's very complicated. It's this whole thing where they have to go to a specific place, and they have to slay a black ram, and its blood has to drain into a trench and so forth. And they actually succeed, but call up more spirits than they can handle, including Odysseus' mother, who he didn't even know had died. And it's a really incredible scene, and that kind of sets the tone for the next, like, thousand years of necromancy, which was always very complicated, these insanely complex spells. You know, you, you might have to possess something like a lion skin that you would wear tied around your waist. Things, I mean, it was just really obviously difficult and impossible. And, but to me, one of the interesting things about all of that early summoning of the dead is that it was almost always done alone which is a really interesting comparison to the seance when suddenly it's now done in a group. And even though there is still a medium who is plainly the person who is directing it all, it definitely is a group activity. And that was a really big change in how this was always done. I mean, in the past, even if you were not a magician, but you wanted to talk to a dead spirit, you would still do it alone. You would usually do something like go out to 
the uh, place where they were buried and sleep that night on the tombstone, something like that. So to suddenly get to like 1848 and now it's a group activity was kind of a significant change. Yeah, and then I, also we're close to Christmas here and kind of ghost stories and seances with the Victorians when when it became really big kind of uh, is big around Christmas. People think that Halloween is always been the time for ghost stories, but it was actually Christmas a lot. It, it was absolutely Christmas throughout the 18th and 19th century. Um, Dickens, of course, is the guy who kind of really made that famous with not just with writing A Christmas Carol, which I think is one of the great ghost stories ever written, aside from being the great Christmas story, but he also was an editor of a number of magazines. And in those magazines, he loved to put out these annual Christmas editions that would be packed with ghost stories. And you can find those now online or reprinted or whatever and read these ghost stories, and a lot of them are still really, really great. Um, there's a very famous one from 1852 called The Old Nurse's Story, which was published in one of his Christmas editions, and it's about this woman who is hired to serve as a nanny who goes out into this isolated British manor. I mean, it's the oldest ghost story, I think, almost in the book, and um, but it's still a really great story. It's very chilling. It has some really interesting twists. And yeah, he was he was doing those up until Dickens edited them up until about the mid 1850s. They were popular for about another 20 years after that, and then they kind of oversaturated the market, and people started making fun of them. And of course, as soon as you get that, it's always like the death of whatever it is they're making fun of. So with the Victorians, because that kind of the modern seances and, and spiritualism, so what kind of kicked the Victorians off with this fascination of sitting down with mediums and doing this as a group effort? There were a bunch of things happening in the middle of the 19th century um, that kind of led to that. It was an incredible time of change. Everything was in flux. Uh, everything from technology to how things were manufactured. Suddenly you had these big factories that were employing all these people and belching out these fumes and making the air polluted in some of the big cities. You had changes in travel and in export and trade and textiles and philosophy and art and religion. It was all really changing, and it left a lot of people feeling kind of abandoned, um, especially in terms of spiritually. Um, one of the big philosophies that came out of the Age of Enlightenment was materialism, which was the idea that everything, of course, was very material and very concrete. And people felt kind of adrift with that philosophy, and they were searching for something else. They were not comfortable necessarily with traditional religion anymore, but they started looking into some odd things, um, like just before we get spiritualism and seances, we get some really strange things like mesmerism, which started at the end of the 18th century and was not what we probably would think of today. When we hear mesmerism now, I think we all think of hypnosis. But when it started, it was an entire philosophy about how the body had these magnetic points throughout it. And when you got sick, it was because those mag magnetic points were not in alignment. So they would hold these gatherings where people would do things like climb into these huge tubs full of water and clutch these iron rods. And it was supposed to bring these poles back into the correct alignment. And it was really popular for a while until 
spiritualism comes along, and and spiritualism and the seance started in 1848. It's really interesting that this is one case where we have an exact moment in history when this starts. Um, it starts with these two teenage girls in upstate New York, um, and most people have probably heard of the Fox sisters. That was um, Katie and Maggie Fox, and they were living with their parents in this very isolated farmhouse kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I think they were um, waiting for their real house to be built, and they started hearing these weird sounds coming from around this old farmhouse, and the girls ended up realizing that they could communicate with these strange rapping, knocking noises, and they could ask questions, and the the rapping noises would seem to answer, and um, word of this got out, and within weeks, hundreds of people were showing up at this farmhouse wanting to see this in action. People did things like figured out that they could lay out the letters of the alphabet and point to each one and wait for the knocks to happen at each letter to put together, like, names and sentences and so forth. And eventually, the girl's uh, older sister, Leah, who lived in Rochester, New York, got the idea of bringing them to live with her. And so Kate and Maggie went to live with Leah in Rochester. Leah started charging to come in and see this miraculous thing happening. And that's where we get the seance. Um, The whole form of people would come into Leah's house. They would sit around her big dining table. They would join hands, and Kate and Maggie would act as mediums. And the people who were at these early seances might witness anything from the table tilting to hearing strange rapping sounds coming from around the room to um, Kate and Maggie maybe answering questions for them that were supposedly from their dead loved ones. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because around that phenomenon, you had like in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, you had the um, Society for Psychical Research who comes along to start uh, exposing the fake phenomenon because, of course, with supposedly real phenomena, you have lots of charlatans and fakes that come around. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about the SPRs, um, when they first started, they were not out to debunk these mediums. They just wanted to investigate them. And it wasn't until they had started to investigate a few of them that they started to realize that this is all fake. And at that point, their mission did kind of change a bit. But um, the other interesting thing about the early days of the SPR, and we're talking like the 1880s, was that they had a theory that they put a lot of research into, which was the idea that maybe the mediums were not actually contacting the spirits of the dead, but were instead reading the minds of the people who were sitting with them. So, for example, the medium might say, I'm getting the name Uncle Bill, and Uncle Bill liked blue shirts. The medium might have actually been reading that from the mind of the person sitting next to her. Yeah, one of the other things that I found fascinating that came from the SPR was their thought form experiments that they did um, to try to explain maybe that they're just creating their own ghosts by putting out, you know, these uh, thoughts and making up a narrative and kind of somehow that is uh, becoming its own entity and kind of messing with the environment in a way. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the most interesting I think case of that ever was much later in, in what, the 1960s with the Philip experiment, which was a 
group that was out of the Toronto SPR, I think it was, and they um, they wanted to investigate exactly that to see if they could create a spirit. And they tried for a year doing things like meditation techniques, and it didn't work. And after a year, they gave that up, but they decided to try it in the form of a traditional seance, and that worked. And they created this spirit called Philip, and Philip would apparently do the same kind of things that the Fox sisters were experiencing, the table tilting and rapping sounds. And so, yeah, that's a very famous experiment in the history of paranormal research. Unfortunately, no one's able been able to really duplicate that and get the same effect. They've tried a few times and it just hasn't succeeded yet. But we do have a film of some of the Philip group with their seances, and you can find it on YouTube. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah, that that research has always fascinated me because they yeah created this this entity out of nothing, and it would answer questions, um, and they kind of inserted it into history, but it never really lived. But it would answer questions like it really lived during that historical time and things like that. But yeah, really cool, really cool thing to. I've gone down that rabbit hole a few times of of studying that. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And the, the book on it is unfortunately really expensive and collectible now, Conjuring Up Philip. But if you can ever find a copy, it's well worth a read. Yeah. But also throughout the Victorian era, there were a lot of famous people that were involved. Specifically, famously, Harry Houdini was involved in kind of debunking, trying to debunk all of these mediums and, and seances and things. Yeah, the magicians were actually kind of the first debunkers. Um, before Houdini, there was a very famous British uh, magician named Jan Maskelyne who debunked a number of them. And then, of course, Houdini comes along. And Houdini has what I call the most interesting relationship in the entire history of the paranormal with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, of course, created Sherlock Holmes. And they were such an interesting pair because Houdini was the skeptic who really wanted to believe, and Conan Doyle was the doctor who should have been the skeptic but was a gigantic true believer. And they started with a wonderful, warm friendship. They really admired each other. Houdini was such a fan of writers that he had a gigantic library at his home in New York. He actually had um, a little velvet box velvet-lined box that he kept all of Conan Doyle's letters in. He held those in such esteem, but it all fell apart in, I think it's 1922, when Mrs. Conan Doyle has taken up mediumship, and they hold an afternoon seance at which she goes into a trance and engages in automatic writing, which, of course, is the idea that in the trance state, the spirit is acting through the medium to write things. And she produced something like 22 pages of material supposedly written by Houdini's mother. Houdini was obsessed with his mother. He always referred to her as my sainted mother. And he was absolutely mortified when he saw these pages. He said his mother didn't speak a word of English. It absolutely ended his friendship with Conan Doyle. And they, they became almost bitter enemies after that. In 1924, Houdini wrote his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, which was kind of his debunking guide. And he sent a copy to Conan Doyle, and Conan Doyle scrawled across the title page, A Malicious Book. Um, <laughs> and they would often have like rival t lecture tours where they might be like one night Houdini would be debunking 
hearing a lecture in an auditorium. And then the next night, Conan Doyle might be lecturing in the same auditorium to the true believers. So they had such an interesting relationship. Yeah, and kind of seances even even spread over to the White House and, and with presidents and first ladies. Yeah, they sure did. That It kind of starts with a lesser-known president, Franklin Pierce. And um, he was, I think, elected in 1848 or I get that it was 48 or 52. I'm not sure which one. But as uh, he and his wife were headed to Washington for one of the early meetings after he'd been elected, before he took office, they were traveling on a train with their young son. And there was a terrible train accident. The train derailed, rolled down a hill. Amazingly, only one person died in this accident, and it was their son. And Mrs. Pierce Jane was never a fan of Franklin going into politics. She was really not at all into being first lady. And so after their son died, she went into a period of mourning for six months. She didn't even go near the White House. When she finally came to the White House, she had it completely dressed in black and started holding seances there. And there is a real possibility that two of the mediums she brought in were the Fox sisters. We don't have like a hundred percent confirmation of that, but we have some letters where she talks about mediums who sound very much like Katie and Maggie. So it's possible that there was an interesting connection there with the Fox sisters holding a seance at the White House. And then of course Later on, we get Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd, having a similar thing where a young child of theirs dies, and they are holding seances in the White House. And there's been a lot of speculation on that as to whether Lincoln was part of those or not. I've read arguments both ways, that he was really a firm believer, that he was a spiritualist, and then I've read the opposing argument that he was not. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So at this point, we may never know for sure, I think, with him. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that it was so part of pop culture that it would even go over to politics and, and have all these famous people involved throughout history. Uh, so we've kind of, you've kind of touched on it a few times, like automatic writing, table tipping. So in the Victorian era, with seances, kind of how would they be set up and what kind of things would they be trying to do in a seance? Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because I, I love to talk about how a seance back then is probably not at all what we think of as a seance now. I think we have been conditioned by decades now of horror books and horror movies to think of seances as these things where people were getting together to scare themselves or whatever. But back then, a seance was, I describe it as one part revivalist meeting, one part party, and one part magic show. You can read actual newspaper descriptions from people who were at these seances. So we have a really good idea of what they were like. They would assemble at a place that was either a sitter's house or maybe the medium's house. 
they would usually know each other, so it was like a party where you have all of these friends there. They would start a seance by sitting down at the table and singing. The singing was something that served two purposes, really. One was that it just kind of brought everybody together and created this nice convivial atmosphere, but it had a more practical purpose, too. It allowed the medium to possibly set things up because with the singing, no one could hear. And at this point, they've also turned down the gas light in the room, so it's very dim. No one can really see what the medium is doing. If they're singing, they can't hear it either. So at this point, the medium might be, for example, if uh, quite often they would bind the medium to the chair. The medium might be untying themselves. They might be doing things like pulling out a telescoping rod that they are going to use to mark the ceiling, and then later on they can claim that they floated up to the ceiling. They might be uh, setting up props that they are going to claim that the spirits produced during the seance. But it's really interesting that when you read accounts of people leaving these seances, they are just so full of joy and wonder. I mean, they, they come out and quite often they say, that was the greatest night of my life. And even the people who were skeptics would come out and say, well, I, I'm not convinced, but I sure had a great time. So they were really remarkable events that, like I said, I think are very different from what we think of now as a seance. Yeah, yeah. Now, some of that stuff is kind of transferred over because I know I still see uh, people that do table tipping and things like that. But now we have what I think is like, of course, we have Ouija boards and, and pendulum boards and things like that. But I think even like spirit boxes is kind of like the modern tech equivalent of a Ouija board. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree a thousand percent with that. So with with Ouija boards and stuff, when do they kind of pop up in the seance movement? I know they've been around for a long, long time. They have been around for a while. They were originally called usually talking board. They were a little bit different looking from the Ouija board. But then, of course, at the end of the 19th century, we get, I think it's William Fold comes along and patents the Ouija board. And what's interesting about that is he patents it not as a device for communicating with the dead, but as a parlor game. And there is absolutely no mention in his original patent of using this to communicate with spirits. Um, it doesn't really take that identity on for another decade or so. And then World War One happens. And World War One is such a global traumatic event with so many people losing their sons and their brothers and their husbands and their friends in this war, they quite often have lost them when they haven't seen them for months, or sometimes they didn't even know if they were still alive or not. And people are seeking some way of solace and comfort, and they have this device now, this Ouija board, which... You can bring into the comfort of your own home. You don't have to go see a medium. Um, you can sit down with this and maybe you can find out what happened to your son or get a message from them. So the Ouija board becomes hugely popular right after World War One, And in fact, it is so popular at that point that in 1919, the Catholic Church 
puts out an anti-Ouija board book <laughs> called The New Black Magic, and it is crazy. If you read this book, I mean, it actually says things like, if you play with a Ouija board, you will become an imbecile. <laughs> um, it really is nuts, yeah. But, of course, it didn't dampen um, <laughs> the, the popularity of the Ouija board at all. Yeah, yeah. And now we have, of course, you know, Parker Brothers with the with the Ouija board you can buy at, like, Walmart, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm always amazed at that. Uh, there was an interesting thing just this last year, in fact, where there was a really tiny, cheap Ouija board that was on sale at these British stores that I guess are like the, their equivalent of the 99-cent store, and it caused kind of an uproar. People did not like the idea that this device they perceived as being somehow associated with black magic was for sale at their equivalent of a 99-cent store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we've kind of had, there's been pockets of like satanic panic is kind of what they called it in the 80s, where a lot of these things have been kind of demonized, for lack of a better word, I guess. Even now, I think we're having a resurgence of the demo, uh, the satanic panic with all the demon stuff on TV. And and so people, their views on Ouija boards have kind of changed over the years into whether it be because of religious leaders or, or people saying, you know, these are these are evil things you're conjuring demons and things like that but yeah it's kind of changed over the over the years it has and and i actually think the exorcist has a lot to do with that up until 1973 when that movie was released the ouija boards were still kind of party games and then this movie comes out that shows this little girl getting possessed after playing with a ouija board and at that point the sort of satanic thing with Ouija boards really comes into play and just, you know, I think other horror movies then pick that up and run with it. We get the whole Witch Board series or the Ouija series and now it's, it's bad rep is here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with pop culture now with, with some of the TV shows looking for ratings, you know, they throw the demon word around and unfortunately that's, you know, the Ouija board gets thrown in there. The spirit boards get thrown in there as well. But uh, a lot of people still use them as a tool. I, uh, as a skeptical believer in the paranormal, I'm kind of skeptical of them uh, because you have the human element there with hands on it. So you never know what people's intentions are or even unconsciously them moving, you know, the planchette. Oh, yeah. I, I, I totally believe in that whole idiomotor response idea, which is still fascinating to me that, that I, the idea that our fingers are sort of operating reflexively apart from our brains and sending us these messages is is pretty amazing to me yeah yeah if the planchette moves on its own without somebody's hands on it okay then i'll be impressed that it's a spirit moving <laughs> right. it around uh, i have seen pendulums move uh on pendulum boards when they have kind of the tripod set up with a pendulum uh that's interesting uh -huh. but uh it is but yeah i'm not i'm not sold on on pendulum boards and ouija boards and spirit boards things like that i think they're fascinating and there are some uh beautiful ones out there that people create out of wood and things like that but but yeah, I don't, right. I don't know how much stock I give them to them as a paranormal investigator. I feel kind of about them the same way I feel about tarot cards, which I, I is that I think they are beautiful. It's, there's a sort of elegance to the system. They can probably help people unlock intuition or subconscious thoughts, but I think that's the extent of it. Yeah. So also kind of during the Victorian era, you had the spirit photography that kind of came into play. And at some of these seances, you see like this ectoplasm coming out of people and things like that. 
Oh yes, ectoplasm. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the spirit photography and the ectoplasm kind of happen at about the same time. So yes, indeed, they were they were often photographed, and both kind of come around at the end of the 19th century into the early 20th when spiritualism was kind of changing because it had been debunked so much. And then in 1888, there was a huge commission that um, just said it's all nonsense. And it seemed like it was going to die for a while, but it didn't. And it kind of resurrected in these new physical mediums who would be producing uh, this supposedly spiritual material called ectoplasm. And then photography is uh, technologically advancing, so you start to get these these photographers who are photographing these mediums, and some of those early photographs are absolutely astonishing. I mean, aside from whether or not you choose to believe anything real is happening in them, they are incredible pieces of early photography. There was one um, medium named Eusapia Palladino, who was kind of a favorite of the SPR, and she produced ectoplasm, and they photographed her quite a lot. And then they also um, photographed, or not the SPR, but one of their investigators, Harry Price, was very interested in a medium named Helen Duncan. And uh, Helen Duncan is my personal all-time favorite medium. (laughs) She's 20th century, and Harry Price started investigating her in the 20s. And she was supposedly very skilled at producing ectoplasm. And Harry Price photographed her, tested her in the lab a number of times, and ended up concluding that what she was doing was, before the seance, she would swallow a length of cheesecloth or um, even pages of magazines so she could produce what looked like faces in the darkness. And she could regurgitate this at will. Now, I, I don't know about anybody else, but being able to regurgitate at will seems almost as incredible to me <laughs> as being able to talk to a spirit of a dead person. Yeah. Um, yeah. He found evidence of scarring in her esophagus. So she had obviously was paying a price for doing this, but she was very good at it. And she was a, a really interesting medium who came to prominence in 1944 when she was put on trial in the top court of Great Britain for fraud at a seance. And the trial was so sensational that for weeks it captured all the headlines away from World War II, and it actually really angered Winston Churchill, who was writing notes to his ministers going, what what is this trial? She was tried under a 1785 Witchcraft Act, which is incredible, and she was found guilty by the end of it. And got the maximum sentence of six months in prison, and she served the time. But she was a really, the trial was fascinating. She was a very interesting medium. Her spirit guide was a gentleman named Walter, who was very snarky and sarcastic, and he would make fun of her. And she was quite the, uh, I would guess she must have been very charismatic and very entertaining. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, I know that, you know, in the United States, seances were a big thing, but did it kind of go across the world or was it more popular in certain countries? It never really extended beyond the English-speaking countries. It moved into continental Europe a bit. We do know that it was popular for a while in France and a little bit 
farther down, we get um, some of the early mediums were touring and meeting with the various royalty and kings and queens. Um, Daniel Douglas Hume, who was possibly the most famous of the 19th century Victorian mediums, was well acquainted with the Russian royalty at the time. So it kind of traveled around Europe and America. It never really went into any of the Asian countries or South America, that kind of thing. And I'm I've kind of always wondered why, in fact. Um, I suspect it just has to do with certain basic beliefs in the afterlife. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is fascinating, especially, you know, down in South America, you have the Day of the Dead and things like that where they celebrate the dead. So you would think that something like a seance contacting the dead might, you know, kind of be right up in, in that part of their culture. You would think so, although the seances also seem to run into trouble in very Catholic areas um, because the Catholic Church, of course, condemns the practice right from the start and um, has always pretty much maintained that the spirits of the dead cannot and do not return. Yeah, that would would make sense because, yeah, South America tends to be, yeah, heavily Catholic for sure. So with the modern seance, how how has it changed? I know we were talking about how different it was in the kind of Victorian, the spiritualism era. So kind of how has the modern seance changed uh, to what we see today? Well, you actually almost hit on it earlier, Eric. I, I think of the seance as having at some point split into two different directions. Um, Direction one is what used to be the trance mediums are now the modern psychics. And we're talking like even the superstar psychics, um, John Edwards and the late Sylvia Brown, that kind of thing. But the spiritualists also had an obsession with science. They believed at the beginning that their religion, and it was a religion to them, was the only one that could be proven scientifically. And it didn't matter how often it was debunked by science. Um, up until about 1900, they still maintained that it could be proven scientifically. And I think that obsession has split off and become the modern paranormal investigation. So um, obviously there are still seances that are happening, and there are still um, spiritualism. is still a recognized religion, although it has dismissed that whole idea of being proven scientifically. It now focuses much more on healing, that kind of thing. But I think the paranormal investigation absolutely is a direct descendant of that that, um, 19th century interest in science and the paranormal. Yeah, that makes sense because like you were talking about, you have Harry Price, who is kind of one of the fathers of, uh, the grandfathers of modern paranormal investigation. And then you have like Hans Holzer, who kind of use some of the methods with uh, mediums and things to investigate houses. And there's, of course, books and famous recordings from him and the medium that he used. And it's funny, I'm actually reading one of Hans Holzer's books right now. I'm reading Ghost Hunter. And, yeah, it's interesting to read that he was he was very dependent on mediums. And it, it's interesting that the modern paranormal investigation has kind of fallen away from that a little bit, but it does seem to be coming back to that more and more. I noticed just like scanning some of the current reality television shows, it seems like 10 years ago, none of them ever used mediums, and I'm seeing that coming up more now. Yeah, and you kind of end the book in a, in a interesting way, and I, I like how you did this. Do we need the seance, and why do we need the seance? 
Yeah, and um, it's something that I certainly had had wondered about. And one of the things I think that surprised me when I set out to write the earlier book, Ghost of Haunted History, I was a very, very confirmed skeptic. And by the time I was done writing that book, that had changed. Um, because you cannot write a book about 10,000 years of people seeing ghosts and not realize something's going on. Um, <laughs> right. And with the seance book, I almost went the other direction. I really thought I would find much more confirmed belief among people in the mediums. And instead, I just found debunking after debunking and fraud after fraud. I, at one point, I was joking that the book should be subtitled um, A History of Fraud. <laughs> and it's kind of... I. People always ask me if I think any of the great mediums were real. I, I think it's entirely possible that some of them may have possessed some kind of extraordinary skill. I'm not sure if it was just immense charisma or if they had something going on beyond that. But I know that one of the, the saddest things I, I read is what I end the book with, and that was Maggie Fox at the end of her life, just a few years before she died, saying, confessing to having been a complete fraud and saying that she had tried to really contact the spirits of the dead. She had even gone into cemeteries at night and had never had anything happen. And I thought that was so sad that here was the woman who was one of the two who was credited with creating this whole form, admitting that none of it ever worked for her. Yeah, I, I love the book. I think it it is it's surprising how much it has influenced what we do as paranormal investigators and how we investigate the paranormal today. Um, it just, it's, it's, it's crazy how thinking, you know, people over a hundred years ago, you know, how this has all come to fruition to what we see as paranormal investigating and, and diving into the paranormal nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting too, to me that the paranormal investigation is almost always done in a group which is, again, I think a descendant of the seance in the 19th century spiritualist movement. Yeah. So everybody go out and check out Calling the Spirits of History Seances. It is an awesome book. So, Lisa, what else do you have coming up in the near future? Well, I just spent uh, all of 2022 on my first big coffee table art book, which I'm really excited about because I've always had a bucket list item of wanting to do a big coffee table book. And um, it's on a different, very different kind of subject, though. It's called The Art of the Zombie Movie. So it has been a wonderful process. I just, in fact, last week handed in the last big chunk of it. It will be out from Applause Books in fall of next year. And I can answer anything you ever want to know about zombie movies <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and um, I'm still not sure yet what I'm going to be working on in 2023. I have a couple of proposals out, so fingers crossed that one of those will come through. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lisa. Hey, thanks a lot, Eric. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Unseen Paranormal Podcast. Join us next week for an all-new amazing guest. And in the meantime, please go on Spotify or Apple and give us a rate and a review. And uh, go over to YouTube and hit that subscribe button. Also, if you would like to submit your story, you can email it to unseenparanormalpodcast at gmail.com. And you can remain anonymous if you like. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there.